me uh, take a moment to welcome you to Restoration Church. If you have uh, kids or students, you're welcome to uh, head back to the back of this room where our students meet or to the other side of this little uh, common area we have for kids meet. They're also welcome to stay right here uh, with us. <coughs> want to mention a couple of quick things before we jump into our, uh, our text today. The first is just to welcome you all, whether you are here in person, we're glad to have you. i to move this. If you are watching us online, we are glad to have you. And if you're one of the elite Christians who is asleep right now, we will be watching this message tonight at 6.30 when you wake up, you're sort of welcome today. Entirely no sort of, all right? So thank you for being here today. Uh, today, we're going to continue on, uh, in our teaching about community. And I want you to know, uh, very importantly, that there are some things around you that can help you to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ and the community that we're building here. So out of your seats, you'll find connection cards to the left or to the right. If for some reason there isn't one by you, there are also some on the way out here. We want you to know if you're in this room, watching us online, wherever you are, that um, we really see faith as a, it's a, it's a journey of community. And so if you have questions about who we are, where we're going, if you need to be prayed for, if there are needs, whatever it is, community is one of our, our pathway points, simply meaning the three things our church revolves around are gospel, truth, which we talked about last week, community, the care we have for each other, and mission, the love we show our neighbor. And so uh, please know that we deeply care about you and the things you're going through. So let us know on those cards, or you can sort of email, call, whatever, if you're watching online. Don't walk alone this week in Jesus. Make sure that you know that you are thoroughly supported by this family. Those cards can be dropped these gift cards on the way out after we're done this morning. And if you're online, you can certainly communicate with us in any of the digital tools that you prefer we employ in the mall. And so with that said, we have been talking about uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46. And we've been working through uh, theology of, of community, essentially looking at, at a time when every social rhythm in the world has been disrupted, uh, the church is no different. Even though it, the church has, you know, I'm talking about the capitalism church, we meet in a, in a room like this once a week or so. We also have a rhythm that we express in the world that we live in, the way that we are sort of the light and the life of Christ. There is absolutely no rhythm where people gather that has not been affected in some shape, way, or form uh, by everything that's been going on. So that's why it's critical that we take some time to really talk about what we mean when we say we are a church. And we've been using Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46, to look at some of the, the embryonic sort of definitions of what marked the church out from getting distinct from any other gathering on the face of the earth, and to this very day is still true. And so I'll read to you Acts chapter 2 again, verses 42 through 46. It's the main text we've been bouncing around in. And uh, if you have a, a Bible, if you phone us in place, Please check that out if you're watching online, uh, pull it up. If you don't have either, mark it and get into it sometime throughout this week, because it is a very important teaching. Here's what Luke tells us. He says, they, speaking of the, the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. We spent uh, a great amount of time at length last week talking about the apostles' teaching, which is the truth. Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is the... the the block of text that we have chosen to look at. It is sort of the foundation for everything else that is chronicled in the book of Acts, which is uh, a summation of the expansion of the church throughout the first century. And this is sort of the, the concrete slab that everything that goes on after the book of Acts is, is built on. And over these past weeks, we talked about the importance of community in general, how it finds its root in uh, the person of God, his Son and Holy Spirit, there's never been a time in existence when there has been the absence of community. And we talked about the significance of looking to um, to really an objective understanding of what community is by understanding the way God the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit interact with each other. We talked about the significance of truth last week and how we want to make sure that we are able to discern what is and is not true 
And we want to be able to, um, at places like when we have truth, to be humble and gentle and gracious in the way that we share it with other people. Today we're going to pick up on this second word, fellowship. I, I learned last week that we're not going to get through more than one of these on a, on a discussion yet. If you, this is your first time visiting, we've changed the rhythm a little bit. On Sundays we've created some interaction points for you to be able to discuss and talk uh, back about things that we're, uh, we're looking at. So today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We discussed that the, uh, the teaching of the apostles was what everything we're studying comes out of. The narrative of Jesus, the truth of who Jesus is, is what shapes the rest of this passage. And here we have this word, fellowship, which I mentioned to you last week. The best way that I like to describe fellowship at our church is to treat it like a kitchen table. It's a place where there's great meaning, where there's the sharing of, of food, where there are often very wonderful, oftentimes very difficult conversations. If you think about the significance of what a, what a, a dining room table is or a kitchen table is, some of the most beautiful and most difficult memories we have in life probably revolve around a table like that. And so while there are forms of the church today in our world that are very corporate and uh, have their own rhythms, that's, that's fine. But I think when you begin to, to read these types of passages, you see that the church is supposed to be a, a family. It's actually one of, the, one of the descriptions we have. Every relational, every description of the church in the New Testament has some kind of significant relationship connected to it. We're called many members of one body. We're referenced in regard to husband and wife, Jesus being the husband and the the church being his bride. All of these things represent significant and deep levels of relationship. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about fellowship. Fellowship as a kitchen table goes. And my first question to you this morning, and I hope we have the same level of sort of robust dialogue that we've been having, is this. I want you to, to sort of pause, step back for a minute, and think about the world as you've seen it presented to you over the past year. And I'm curious what you think some of the most dominant values in our culture are today that drive the way we think and act. In other words, what are the what are the things that seem to be really emphasized in our world right now that actually affect the way we think and the way that we act as a as a culture? Of <laughs> the economy. Okay, so economics without question, right? The uh, whether you like it or not, the economy plays a central role in every organized nation on, on Earth. And it has great power to, to make things very positive or extremely negative, right? I.e., you can have a booming stock market or a depression. Each one of these things creates a very different type of, of uh, relationship on the other end. Absolutely. The economy, without question, has, has an effect um, on, on the way we think and act. What else? Mobility. Okay, so this is interesting. Um, and I totally agree, especially living in Volusia County, which is like the logo of Volusia County should be like the word Volusia, like a truck with wheels on the bottom of it. Because so many people come and go here, it's crazy. But you're, you're right, mobility is a substantial thing. It, it has affected um, everything. You know, the, the ability to just get your car and go someplace or to relocate because of a job. In some senses, it's caused some parts of the country to boom. In other places, it might have it might have caused some of the, these areas to maybe not boom as once as they once did because where the jobs are, people go, or where the economy is good, people go, or maybe you're just looking to retire and you'd rather do it by a beach than a, a rusty steel mill somewhere out, you know, in the, in the middle of the country. Or offense to any of you in the middle of the country. But the idea is that we mobility has given us this, this freedom um, to move around, and that definitely shapes on a local level, the way we understand relationship and community without uh, without question. What else? Safety. Safety, okay. So the desire of every human, I mean, pretty much is to be safe and, and stable. This is sort of something that uh, the human heart cries out for. And so there's no question, especially as of late, that uh, being safe, which is obviously something that we believe is, is very wise, that can actually dictate your behavior and, and your actions without question. Safety. It can also, just on a side note, safety is um, is wise in one sense, but can also be the greatest prohibition that actually keeps us from doing great things in life. Because uh, we, we, we might be in a place where we're so risk averse that we don't take the necessary steps um, to 
I tell my friend I want to skydive, and so she got me a pass to skydive. Uh, so I cannot wait to do that. If for some reason there's a guest speaker the weekend after we have a little because I'm about 12 feet in the third in the land. But uh, I, I cannot wait to do that. So, uh, and for me, I actually try to do things, not silly, stupid things, but it's important for me to take steps that that keep fear in check, which is something that's always been uh, a value in, in my life. And so safety, as wonderful as it can be, can also be the kind of thing that causes, uh, like I'll go right to the Bible, Peter, everybody kind of makes fun of Peter because he took his eyes off Jesus and fell into the water. But Peter was the only guy that had the guts to get out of the boat. That's the way that I like to look at that, at that text. And so safety, I'm not saying you ought to be naive uh, or reckless, but I'm saying you want to make sure that we are not safe to the extreme that we we might even miss out on some of the kingdom opportunities that God gives us. What else? One more that I want to share with you where, uh, where we're going to. These are all very valuable pieces of input. Fairness. Fairness, okay. So clearly we want to uh, live in a place where there is equity, where uh, we understand the fact that we're sort of created in the image of God. And because of that, we are all equally valuable. This is one of the first things we talked about when we began to resume our time together here on Sundays. And so that's indisputable, right? That, uh, that as people, that's another thing we long for. We long for fairness. We long for, um, for justice. These are some of the basic nutrients that the human heart longs for when we look at the world that we, that we live in. So absolutely. And my, my point in asking you these, this question is to show us that some of the things we might even take for granted, some of the, the rhythms that we become most accustomed to, it does us well to know how they shape us in negative and positive, uh, positive ways. Because any type of cultural influence very likely has the ability to shape us in a negative or a positive way. This is why it's so important that we talked about uh, truth last week, so that we have some objectivity as we begin to get into uh, something as significant as fellowship. I want to ask you this. Um, I wonder to what degree do you think consumerism okay, has affected the way we, and let's just refine this conversation in North America right now. To what degree has consumerism affect, affected our, um, our understanding of life, friendships, relationships? Consumerism, I'm sure most of you know, but just in case you don't, this is sort of the fact that we, uh, we live in a culture that is largely bent on consuming goods and, and services. That's, I think, 16% of our economy is based on that. So uh, that's the first thing that came up. We should pick at this a little bit. Consumerism, how do you think this has positively or negatively, or really this is open mic, however you want to you wanna talk about this, I'm, I'm okay with it. So in case you didn't hear this on the other side of Mike, uh, this is an interesting perspective. You're, you're bringing up that, uh, and you specifically applied it to the, the pandemic, that, that we've sort of been forced in some ways to figure out like what we do need and do not need. So as you know at the beginning of all this, Americans for some reason, they really realized they needed toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it was crazy watching like borderline fish slice on the, uh, the aisles of Walmart over toilet paper. But nonetheless, that's a great example where some people thought, and for a short time in our country, that was better than the stock market. I swear you could have sold a roll for like $150 on the street corner uh, because of how much of a shortage there was. But there is this interesting sort of coming and going with consumerism. And I do think you're right that part of what is, is surfacing today is what we really do and do not uh, need. And this is true where there are actually shortages in some areas. Like uh, for example, um, there was a, I have a refrigerator, because I believe in electricity, and um, we had a problem with one of the lights went out, but it was not repairable because they, the places where they manufacture lights are no longer trading with America. So you think about something, something as simple as that, like, oh, okay, this little light that I never thought twice about, 
no longer is being created in a way where it can be shipped to America. This has a significant effect. This is a minor reality here, uh, but nonetheless, it shapes or starts to reshape the way we live our daily rhythm. So, big picture point here is it could cause us to to really figure out what we do and do not need. Maybe discern the differences between needs and wants, and both of those are acceptable, obviously, at times in lives. But in life, but it's good to know the difference between a need and a want. What else? What else is consumerism? I'm trying to find a word, but it could be that it's about what, what I get out of it. So consumer, so relationships are about what, what can you give me, and if you can't give me anything, then I don't need to be in a relationship with you. Okay. That's not a positive thing. <laughs> okay. I would agree. Uh, this would be one of the imbalances that a consumer-oriented culture can create. And that is that it's, uh, it's sort of a one-way street. And even if you read any kind of business, uh, which I read a ton of, there is this idea of, of fair, like fair exchange, and so okay. the, the premise of consumerism is, is supposed to be based on like I provide a service for you at a reasonable price that you agree to pay, um, and that's sort of like when the world aligns and the rainbow is there and there's peace and everything's good. But there are places where both the uh, the creator of good or the consumer of good can really imbalance the paradigm. Like they can they can take advantage of a company. Um, or a company can take advantage of a consumer. And one of the, the really this applies to both sides of the coin, um, it, it's, it's rooted in selfishness when somebody begins to violate this sort of written contract that, you know, what I'm giving you is X because this is valuable. And what you're giving me, it's, it's worth me giving up, like my $20 bill or my time or, or whatever it is. But the, one of the challenges with consumerism uh, is that it really can get unhealthy to the place where one person in the party sort of exists to take advantage of the other person in the party, okay? Do, do any of you know how we, one of the main ways we sort of ascertain economic health in America, do you know what the, the number one report we're looking at mostly is? Okay, GDP, right? And I heard jobs, these are all connected to GDP. Gross domestic product simply means we're looking at how much stuff, goods and services are created as a country. And then how much of this stuff we're buying as a country, people are buying. And this is what drives our economy. So we are truly, and I'm not saying this for better or for worse yet, but we are truly driven. Our, our economy is consumer-oriented. We're not like a savings-based economy. Um, you don't see Black Friday sales where, where uh, you know, they're going to raise your savings rate in the bank from 0.3% to 0.5. That's not the way it works in America. They want you to beat up somebody half your size to get a TV for half price. That's how, that's how you know, consumerism at its extreme sort of pushes us. And so I, I want to set the premise of this conversation on this, that um, I think there are a lot of things that have shaped how we understand life and relationship uh, without question. But this is one of the most significant. Because what, what could be relegated to the realm of economic theory actually has one of the most significant impacts on, on human relationships. And so when I was in school many, many, many moons ago, I'll never forget, I took, a, um, I took a class that sort of was addressing sociology and anthropology, sort of like how the church interacts with all the things that are going on in the world. And uh, the professor I had, who I became pretty good friends with, he introduced this idea that's called the C-scale. And uh, the C scale is traditionally a scale that's used in like missionary contexts, like overseas contexts. <coughs> like you try to figure out if you were in another culture uh, that spoke a different language, for example, that would be a barrier that you'd have to work through. That we're talking about sort of like the contextual realities of what could help or impede your your ability to serve another human. And so, obviously, if we speak different languages, that has to be remedied. I either need a translator. Or, um, or I have to learn the language. And the, the more you chip away at that scale, the more likely you are to have healthy relationships. Well, what was interesting was the way he transposed that fact into sort of the reality of what it means to build relationships in, in America. And what he said was that everyone, and this is true, everyone is a consumer to some degree. And this scale was given to us to sort of determine uh, what level we, we were consuming. So this could be like, you know, on the, the one extreme, it could be like, you know, I only buy the things I need. Like, my house is filled with beans and rice and water, right? And you probably have a big metal box in your backyard that you're going to go into 
uh, who's predatory in the way they treat people, meaning they, they are a serial manipulator, they take advantage of people. And all of these things are possible um, in an economy. They're also possible in any type of relationships that we have. Because if you think of the, this idea of consumerism, well, we tend to talk about it mostly from the GDP perspective, its rhythms uh, really know no boundaries. It affects everything we say and we do. And so in this text, we read this one simple word, that there's the truth of the apostles, and then connected to this, one of the things that comes out of the truth of the apostles is, is fellowship, which I would admit, like, is not, it's probably not a super common word we use today. Do any of you, I'm not being facetious here at all, but do you hear people, like, say, let's fellowship? Is this a word you hear a lot today? Yeah, it really is a word that has a lot of strong biblical... Like uh, other people that aren't in the church, kind of like if you hear... If yeah, it's not a common word in our culture. In fact, I would argue that the, the most recent use of the word fellowship in and of itself, you're probably thinking of like Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings, you know, like the fellowship of the ring, which rather it serves as a rather apt analogy. And I'm not going to give you any Lord of the Rings analogies because every pastor has rung that thing out to the nth degree uh, over the past decade. But the idea like behind the fellowship is that there was a mutual participation to accomplish something. Okay? So this word here, which John just brought up, koinonia, is the word for fellowship. And it is a deep, rich, meaningful word. Its context in early Greek is signifying a very particular type of relationship. And I'll share with you some of the descriptions of it, okay? So the word fellowship is one of the ways we can translate this. Uh, a close, mutual relationship. Participation. Sharing in. Partnership. Contribution. Gift. Like gifting. Each one of these descriptions, which sort of highlights what fellowship means, the way these folks were relating to each other, absolutely talks about, um, like there's an equitable economy. There's a mutual participation, a sharing in. And we know for certain that what they were ultimately sharing in is what the apostles were teaching. And that is the story, the message of Jesus is beginning to, to, to leave the Near East and starting to move into the rest of the world. And so foundationally, what they are participating in is the gospel of Jesus. This is what we talked about about a month ago. But what I find interesting about this is that it also shapes, like that, that sounds good, like we're participating, we are supposed to mutually be supporting each other as we you know, pursue Christ. That's a really beautiful thing. But it also requires some practical un unpacking because that is sort of something that could like be written on the back of a book as an endorsement. Great book about sharing in the mutual participation of the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, that sounds great, but like, what does that look like on Tuesday at 10? Or, uh, or Sunday at 12 when we uh, gather and leave this place, okay? So my next question for you is this. What would you say, when we think of this type of, of relationship, what would you say are some of the, the attributes that should define the Christian gathering, the, the fellowship of the, the saints, God's, God's people? What are, uh, we, we talked about some healthy and unhealthy economic realities. What would you say are some good, and, and you are certainly free to share, Maybe some not so good experiences you've had over the years with um, with, with relationships when it comes to the church. Unselfishness. Say that one more time. Unselfishness. Okay, a, a spirit of unselfishness. Right? Okay, a absolutely, and that's reflected here in this that there is a uh, you know the, the great commands are to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, and so. Um, in those commands are embedded in an idea that we are not solely um, concerned for ourselves. And Paul of Philippians actually says there are times when, I'm paraphrasing him greatly, but where we will need to esteem others as greater than ourselves. Like There are places where, in the economy of our life, we might actually need to second our need because somebody's need is greater. So selflessness is, uh, is a very important attribute in the life of any type of relationship, but in particular the one we're talking about today is the church. What else? I think kind of building on what he said, we're a very individualistic nation. Just the, our concept sure. of how we interact, you know, we're, we're very individualistic. But the church, I think, for it to be successful has to be have a corporateness, a sense that what we do is for the common good, not always just what's good for us. And, and that that translates into what the gathering looks like. 
think we're buying into this thing together, and we're all putting ownership in it together as opposed to just going because we get something out of it, it feeds something in us. Yes, yeah, so this is an excellent point. Um, and if you didn't hear it on this side, the idea is that we are all um, individual children in Jesus. And you're connecting this to the, the, uh, the American battle cry, which is don't tread on me. I love that flag. But it can be sort of counterproductive sometimes when you look at the Greek word doulos, which means bondservant, which is sort of how we describe when it comes to our pursuit of Christ. And so um, what's interesting here is individualism and autonomy, which are not necessarily a bad thing. They can, like consumerism, when left to an extreme, they become a problematic. And you can't be a rampant individualist and care about your neighbor. It's pretty difficult to do that. And so one of the unique things about the Christian faith is that there's this balance we strike with our relationship with Christ and then our relationship with each other. And so theologically speaking, um, when you become a Christian, even if you don't go uh, to a church, which talked me earlier with some folks about 30% of Christians, give or take a little bit, are completely gone now. We don't know where they've gone. This is the reality of the church in America as of this day. Okay? So if someone truly is in Christ, they are part of the church capital C. Even if they're not going, this is not recommended, even if they're not participating in a local fellowship, that's not the ideal that God has for us. We're designed to be in relationship with God with each other. And so we can absolutely strike an imbalance if we miss this, if there's if there's too much communal aspect, what happens is, well, then we, we might, you know, you might have a faith that's not your own. And you hear this, especially from folks that have grown up in church generations, and there's nothing wrong with that, it's actually preferable, but they might inherit their grandparents' faith. And then when they turn 20, they realize that they inherited a community idea, but it wasn't necessarily their truth, right? Or you might have somebody who, who really comes to faith in Jesus, uh, like they find Jesus, and then they get to this place where, um, you know, they, they don't believe they need anybody in faith. And that is equally problematic, especially because I've shared with you multiple times that the very origin of how we understand life in the New Testament begins with Christ in a group of people. So there's no question that, that this can affect one way or the other. We, we can begin to treat other people and churches sort of like places that dispense goods and services. And we can really begin to create unhealthy relationships with what those goods and services are. We might over-consume at, at the expense of contributing, or we might actually get to a place where we, um, we solely base any type of, of health on, on consumption. And that is probably one of the best ways to describe where a lot of Western Christianity is today. So let's follow this down the, the rabbit hole a little bit. Um, do you, do you think that our understanding of the way we treat each other, our understanding of local churches, do, do you think that there could be a difference? Is there going to be a relational difference in a, in a group of people, imperfectly, I, you know, we'll admit, none of us are perfect, but you have a group of people that are sort of trying to follow, they're trying to remain faithful to Jesus, right? They're, they're forged together in the crucible of, of pursuing Christ and the mission of God. Does that type of a community look different than a group that might be solely showing up to consume a religious good or service for 60 minutes a week, once a month, um, and then and then maybe consuming another service here or another service there, or not consuming the service at all? We know a lot of people now have you know just sort of chucked physical relationships to the wayside because they can interact with a with a phone. Which don't get me wrong, I love my iPhone, but it does not meet my deepest relational needs. So. What, what is the difference between these two types of, of church families? One that is mutually participating in the mission of God, support each other, and another one that might be filled with people or, or maybe builds its foundation on providing religious goods and, and services. What, what do those paradigms look like? Well, I think the one that is practicing fellowship is harder. Mm -hmm. um, and it it's just going to be hard, and that's the truth. And I never thought of the word fellowship as, like, a word that I should be striving towards. You think of, like, relationships, and I think about our marriage. In our 20s, we were not going for fellowship. We were going for our own needs, right? And then you get a little bit smarter. You've been married a little bit longer, and you realize, like, oh, wait, you know, I'm a little less egocentric. I'm egotistical. Even having children, when we adopted Mia, 
She hated us for the first two years, and I remember being so angry at her. And then God said, because you made it about you, like you really wanted this child to fill a need for you. You really thought that you were, and it shows us that innately we're all sinful, and we're all going to go into every relationship a little bit selfish. But the church that tries to practice fellowship, and I think it should be practicing because you have to keep on it, it's going to be harder. Any relationship that really practices this idea, you're going to have seasons where a child does not want to practice fellowship with you, and you're going to have to love them anyway. Or maybe a spouse or a church, and you're going to have to be committed. It's a commitment, and it's a little bit harder, but in the end, if we're talking about consumers, of the good that you are getting is a valuable good versus going to the dollar store and throwing away something cheap that will fall apart and will not last the test of time. So I never thought about fellowship as like something that you have to practice and work on and keep growing in. And it it will there will be seasons of fruit from it, but then there will also be times of hardness. I think people leave during those hardness, but every relationship has that. Yes. If you're trying fellow if you're trying to practice fellowship. Yeah. So this is a good point. Um, it's what I, I don't think I coined this term, I'm sure somebody else has used it, but in, in our modern world today, relationships have become highly disposable. And what I mean by that is that this, this type of relationship we're reading about here in the church, the, the bond between brother and sister in Jesus, is meant to be rooted in mutual participation. Uh, the idea is that we're ever-growing in that, and you know, you were far too kind about our relationship in, in my 20s. I don't think I understood marriage at all. <laughs> Nobody does. No. Yeah. One does. <laughs> no. Now I thought I'm not an expert. I keep coming down. <laughs> no, I mean, but, but you're right. We want a margin of grace here that there's room to grow in this. But the, the truth is, this um, this can be really challenging for, for some people. And one of the one of the reasons why, like for example, ghosting. This this was a um, ghosting is essentially like you probably all have somebody in your life. And I mean, sometimes these are people that have been in your life for a very long time, who have just disappeared and will not respond to you anymore. And this was something we started observing in the church about five years ago. And then I realized, like, I was reading articles in Forbes magazine about um, job candidates who were, like, scheduled for their third interview, just ghosted and never showed up. And because they found another job, they didn't want to continue with the process. And even the business world was saying, like, hey, listen, this is eventually going to catch up with you on a resume. Like, at some point, somebody's going to make a phone call that you're there, and they're going to realize that you blew off 10 interviews, and you're going to lose the ability to move forward. You, th you think about relationships. Let's just go with the consumer paradigm. Like, you know, you buy a can of beans at Walmart, and you don't want them. So you're forced to, like, go back into the store and wait in the line, put the beans on the counter, and then the, the person working there is like, is there anything wrong with this? Uh, no, I just didn't like the beans. Do you ever see? There's a physical process, right? You don't get to do that. You don't, you don't have to do that with relationships. You should do that, even if you are leaving one. There should be an idea of common decency in that. But what we see today is that um, what people are trying to do is like take the buck fifty and not have to touch the beans anymore. That's sort of like what goes on uh, when hyper individualism takes root in any type of relationship. It's highly problematic when it comes to. To, to, to Christianity, it, it shapes a different type of body, one that is rooted in taking, um, not necessarily giving. And I also want you to know that there are times in our Christian faith where we need to receive. Don't hear me being idealistic here. There are times when we absolutely need to, to rest in what the people of God can provide us in service with. Those seasons exist. But I am saying that, that sh we shouldn't want that to be the only season we live in. We should desire um, something more significant than just unhealthy uh, take. So I'll introduce this concept, and then this is how we'll start to, to wrap up. Unless you guys want to skip on today. <laughs> I didn't think so. I'm not that popular yet, right? So um, there's, a, there's a word that's used that I think best describes uh, koinonia. I mean, if, if you've ever geeked out with me on this, you, you've heard me talk about this, but do any of you know what a liminal, L-I-M-I-N-A-L, a liminal relationship is? Liminal, or liminality, this is the way the words are used. No Googling loud. <laughs> Sounds a lot like lemons. Like lemons? No, lemons. Oh, lemons. Uh, uh, 
Okay, possibly. Well, it's, what's funny is this, it's a word that's like deeply rooted in, in anthropology. That sounds like some white tower academic thing that nobody will know about. But as soon as I define it, you're going to be like, oh, you got to have a bunch of 50 of those in my life. And so a liminal experience would be an experience that a group of people share together um, that binds them in a certain way that others that were not part of that experience are not bound to. So for example, since marriage has come up a bunch of times, you know, there's a, a liminal experience shared between a husband and wife. Other people might know you in deep and meaningful ways, but there's a bond that exists in that relationship because of the nature of the relationship. Where this is perhaps most prevalently seen today is, um, is in the paradigm of what uh, men and women deal with when they go combat. Uh, oftentimes they will, um, I, I read like six books last month, last month on um, the Marine Corps' island hopping campaign in World War II, it was fascinating because uh, I was trying to study leadership, but not leadership from the angle of like a guy that's like, here's 12 things you need to do to be a leader. I was reading all these books about people that just led, and it was fascinating that the, this bond that develops over this time, and this is true today, where you know folks come home and they're, they're having a hard time figuring out how to relate to people because they, they, they just were, you know, they just had more shells going off their back, and they just created this bond between these men and women that, that doesn't exist somewhere else. Um, a great biblical example of this would be, th think of this, think of the Exodus experience, think of those who, who actually went through it, and then think of the generations that heard the story. The story is equally important, like, it, it, it has lost any of its value or meaning, but the truth is that we probably would feel a little bit differently about the Exodus experience if we actually were walking. Uh, it's unbelievable what the experience does. And so, the, the thing I sort of want to leave us with here today is that I, I really think in modern America, one of the challenges the church has faced, and one of the reasons we're seeing such disruption in it right now, is because in a lot of places, we, we built um, marketing models. We, we essentially did like what Martin Lloyd-Jones, great British pastor, said not to do. In the 50s in Europe, he said, um, and this is based on Mark chapter 9, where, uh, where Jesus basically is like kind of rebuking the disciples, because they, they've like been on this spree of like doing wonderful miracles, and then they, they hit this one person who's like demon-possessed, and they can't figure out how to like unlock the code, so they hit their first problem. And the idea behind the text is like Jesus says, this one only comes out by prayer and fasting. In other words, there's something much more than, than your charisma and your charm that is required to address the problem that is before you. And so what's happened is, is in the 40s and 50s in Europe, uh, many people, but Marco Jones is probably the most profound of this, they were writing about the fact that um, we were trying to move forward with the church through gimmicks and marketing and advertisements. And I'm not saying that doing any of that is necessarily bad, but the premise was that if we truly want to see God's kingdom move forward, um, it requires something much more than just that. In other words, I, I can't give you enough iPads on Easter to make you follow Jesus for the rest of your life, but a lot of people will show up to get that iPad, uh, you know, and, and then they'll follow themselves. And so. The challenge the modern church faces is, is whether or not we've built ourselves around a liminal experience. Have we really built ourselves around what it means to pursue Jesus and, and proclaim his goodness in the world? But what I would say is that uh, a family that is doing that is going to have a bind that is much deeper than one that just exists because of some form of a, of a, of a consumptive service, whatever that service is. And that has a serious implication on our lives. What it means is that every day of our lives, we really have to be asking ourselves, are we mutually participating in, in the family of God, the one we have here, and, and the family that exists out there that's not even a part of this family yet? Are, are we interacting in, with this type of fellowship, supporting and caring for each other in the kind of ways that we read about here? And are we actually doing it in such a way, I'll skip to the end of the story, but this is going on in such a way in Acts 2, that other people are seeing and they want to become a part of it. They haven't even heard the teachings of the apostles yet, but they see what's going on because of the teachings of the apostles, and they begin to inquire about it. And as a result, what we read in this passage is that the Lord begins to add to their number. And we know this to be true because many, many churches, the rest of the New Testament, begin to highlight uh, new groups of people that uh, found that found Christ and then collaborated in these early things we call churches, like the Church of Galatia, the Church of in today's language, we're not as regional. We call our church restoration.
So um, this is sort of where we'll wrap up today, is that faith and, and our followership of Jesus, even we can be on a, on a C scale. And I do think it's important that we recognize where we are. Some of us might be giving too much, and what happens there is you, you, you cannot sustain that forever. You know, we've, been, we've been built to rest, too. That's part of what it means to be healthy in the way that we serve Jesus and follow him. Some of us don't give enough. That's just the true of the, the trueness of being uh, a human. And some of us might be not giving enough because we've just never really thought of this before. Or some people might really exist. I've not really come across this culture of Stanford, but some people do exist to take. And that's a whole other level of um, a problem that we've got to deal with. But for today, I want to keep us in the healthy realm. And that is that as we move towards a bit of time of, of reflection, that we think about who we are in Jesus and the root of our faith and what he's done for us. Essentially, Jesus, you know, I'll reference the old man, he pays it all. He does, he, he, he does for us what we cannot do on our own and expects nothing back from us, fully knowing that there are going to be people that look at what he did and deny it and not believe it. And some of us are going to try our hardest to follow him, but, but do it in very imperfect and broken ways. And in, in, in light of all of that, because of his love for God and his love for us, he still participates in, in that fidelity. He is faithful to be a part of that, that participation in the kingdom of God. It's what forges what we're talking about today. So just take a couple minutes um, to think about what we've discussed today. And I want you to know if uh, if you have a question about what we've discussed, uh, any anything, if you would like to dig a little deeper in some areas, you can let us know that on those cards. Uh, if you have a question about life of faith or what it means to pursue Jesus, if you have questions about vision and value, if you have questions about anything, anything but aliens, that's the only thing I want to respond to. I apologize. Um, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to chat, so are uh, as our leadership. But take these, these next moments. Abe, our worship leader, will be here in a moment. He'll, he'll play something just for you to think a little bit and to process what we talked about. And really use this time to take your, your next step with Christ, whatever, whatever that is. Make your action plan this week on how you're going to implement Koinonia in your life as you think about our church family and certainly as you go back into your, uh, your natural spheres of influence. You can take those cards. If you're sitting in this room, you can take those cards and drop them in our giving towers as uh, you exit after the benediction. This is also the time if you're a partner. Uh, we uh, know that we've made a mutual commitment to support restoration uh, with our tithes and our offerings, and I thank you for your, your faithfulness there. You can um, deposit those gifts there, too, or contribute online, as the majority of you do. If you're visiting, we simply ask that you do as the Lord leads. But I do encourage you to do as the Lord leads in every area of your life, and in particular when it comes to community. Uh, to so if you would now give your attention pages for a couple minutes and uh, think, pray, and process what we've spoken about this morning.
you would please stand for benediction. I would encourage you all this week as you go to think about what we discussed this morning. And uh, just maybe a special caveat here, in case you didn't know, on November 3rd we're going to be voting. Uh, many of us have already done so. And this is a time of great sort of tumult in our country. So uh, where you go this week or where you've been, remember you are blessed in the name of Jesus because of your ability to make peace. And so I pray when you see disruption or disaccord or anger, whatever you see, remember that you carry within you the light and the life of Christ. And it is my prayer that we would illuminate whatever darkness is out there. So pray for our leaders, pray for our nation this week, and certainly let's pray that where God provides us opportunities um, to show the love of Jesus that we do so faithfully, wherever that is. And so as you go this week, remember, mutual participation. It is what every significant relationship is built on, even the one with our country. And as you go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father in heaven, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace.